Support for Fieldwork is provided by Manitou Fund. Hey everyone, Mitchell here. We really hope that all of you are hanging in there during this super stressful time with the coronavirus outbreak. As we've said before, our jobs as farmers are more important now than ever. So keep up the good work, keep your head up, and we hope that the sustainable ag practices that we've talked about on this season of Fieldwork inspire you and help you to keep pressing forward. We also hope that our corny jokes give you a much-needed laugh as well. As always, thanks so much for listening, and reach out anytime. I know that we will pull through this together, and there is a ton of light on the other side. Hey, everybody. I'm Zach Johnson. And I'm Mitchell Hora. This is the Fieldwork Podcast, a show by farmers for farmers. If you've listened before, you know that we talk about what's working in sustainable egg and what is not, and why those things maybe are or are not working. Today we're going to get a little bit edgy. Ooh. And we're going to talk about edge of field practices, of course. That's super punny. <laughs> um, yeah, so what we mean by uh, edge of field is, you know, it's something that intercepts the water that's coming off of that farm field. Um I think that just inherently happens. You're going to have water, of course, going off the side of your field. You can catch a lot of it in the field, but that edge of field practice will kind of catch some of that water, clean it out so that the water that is passing through it and into the creek is a lot cleaner. Is it a creek or a creek? Creek. 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 I think it's a creek. So edge of field practices, we're talking about things here like bioreactors, saturated buffers, wetlands. Here we've got uh, Professor Amy Kalita from Iowa State University explaining what those are. Wood chip bioreactors, that's for a subsurface drainage water. That's routing that subsurface drainage water through a really microbe-friendly environment to get those microbes to work on that water. And they will start picking oxygen atoms off of the nitrate molecule and eventually get down to the end of the bioreactor and all you've got is happy microbes and N2 gas that then leaves the system. Saturated buffers are another edge of field practice that's adapted for subsurface drainage water. And then a riparian buffer is just a buffer strip of really grassy material to intercept surface flow. There's also much larger features like wetlands that, that can capture both surface and subsurface drainage water if they're placed in the, in the right place in the landscape. We'll hear more from Amy later on, but first we've got a fellow farmer all queued up and ready to roll, Mike Ehlers. We talked to him on Skype. He farms with his dad and brother near Spencer, Iowa, where they have a corn and soybean farm and also a confinement hog operation. Uh, They do a lot of conservation practices like strip-till, no-till, cover crops, low-disturbance manure application. Um, And as it pertains to today's episode, they also have a bioreactor. Since the ultimate goal of these bioreactors is to help protect waterways, Mike started out by painting a picture of the waterway near his farm, the North Raccoon River. I live next to a dredge ditch, and I don't know if you're familiar with those, Zach, but you know, a long time ago, there, there used to be a, a boat that could float from Storm Lake all the way up to Marathon. They could go boating and ice skating back up in between the two towns, but they went and they, they dug these ditches with dredging machines, and... Uh, cleaned out paths for the water to flow, and then the farmers then and the counties took the tile and they drained the tile into these these ditches. And the ditch that I'm actually looking out my office window right now and looking at is technically the start of the the raccoon the North Raccoon River. 
So the North Raccoon River, I'm like three miles from the start of it, is what flows all the way down to Des Moines, and it's what they pull their drinking water out of. And so I live on the the um, oh the the upper banks of the Northern Raccoon watershed. So the the obvious important question here is: Have you ice skated from one town to the next? <laughs> that was way before my time. That. The- they took that we could skate all the way down there. <laughs> so with yeah. the, the Raccoon River has been really important for Iowa because, and what Mike was just mentioning with um, the Des Moines situation, that was like the watershed and the counties that got sued by the Des Moines Waterworks for yep, that's correct. The nitrates that were in the water. So that the all counties starts that from, the counties that butt yeah, up with that the Raccoon would be River. a little bit downstream from where Mike is at. Sure, but those were like the target areas. So the Raccoon River um, has really been in the news and in the national news because of that direct impact that it has on the Des Moines uh, waterworks system. Yeah. So they've had a big focus on conservation. How, how has that affected your operation and your neighbors, Mike? Right, right, and and. There's been a lot of move into more conservation practices, and I wouldn't say it's a result 100% of this lawsuit that was put on the BB County. Now, it might have woke some people up, but, you know, we, we farm with a mindset. We want to leave the ground better than we found it. Um, we know you've got some practices on your farm, but especially some of the edge of field practices. How has that um, been able to be implemented on your farm? Sure, sure. So the one that you wanted to talk about today is the bioreactor that we have on our farm, which is about three quarters of a mile, no, half a mile just straight south of my house, and it is right on the edge of that Raccoon River. Uh, that bioreactor we put in, uh, well, it's been running two summers now. So it was put in May of 18, maybe late April. I don't remember the exact date. I know we were busy with planting when they came out and, and installed it, but the process started long before that, because in order to put the bioreactor in, you have to have it engineered and make sure the soil is the right soil type. We looked at doing a saturated buffer instead. Um, a saturated buffer is where you just run tie lines out and basically you flood an area, meaning you just make it saturated with grass over the top of it. It sucks up the water and nutrients and then dumps it into there. Our soil type wasn't right for that, so we fell into the bioreactor category which is um, just a big bag of wood chips basically buried under the ground that the water flows through and takes the the nitrates out of. So we started that process in uh, 2017, but we didn't get it installed until 2018. And installing the bioreactor, it's actually the landlord's responsibility. Now, of course, we have a good relationship with our landlord, and he's a conservationist at heart, too. So it was easy to go through the process of, of getting this installed and um, being being implemented on our farm. So uh, you did a, a good job of describing in simple terms what a bioreactor is when you say it's a, a bag of wood chips that takes yep. the nitrates out of the water. Can you explain that a little bit more um, for those who don't understand how a bag of wood chips would take <laughs> nitrates out of water? Magic. <laughs> right? Magic wood chips. Magic wood chips. <laughs> Oh, well, there, I guess Mitchell handled it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Well, that's there it. we go. No more explanation. That's right. Yeah. Good so talking this, to you, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for being Perfect. on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, this bag of wood chips is about, oh, I would say 50 feet wide by 100 feet long is the rough, uh, the rough size of this uh, bioreactor. So and there's a lot of wood chips. There's, there's about 
two or three semi-loads of wood chips that go into here. Mm -hmm. And when they do this, it takes a certain type of wood chip. They started, this practice has been out here, it's been experimented on in the years past. And they before just kind of put mulch in there because that was an easy thing to find. They put the mulch in there and away you go. Uh, now what they do is they have a, a, a hard, like a wood chip, so it's not a mulch anymore. It's just, just chunks of it, like a two-inch or three-inch chunk of of hardwood. And that's what they put into this this liner that they, when they dig the hole, they put a liner in there and then they unload the semis and they took the excavator and uh, drag the the wood chips into into the hole and then they cover it up with uh, the liner that's still just laying on the shoulders of it and basically covered it up, threw the dirt over the top of it and reseeded the grass on the on the top of where the bioreactor bio lays. And there's a control box. So there's this box sticking out of the ground that's a plastic, about a one foot by three foot in in a rectangle that the tile flows into. And then you can look at the water flowing into it. And there's diverter boards in there that'll sh it'll control the level of water that goes into this bag of wood chips. And if there's too much water flowing into it from the tile, it'll just bypass the bag of chips, the bioreactor, and flow directly out into the into the dredge ditch um, by an overflow basically is what it is so it's not restricting the the flow of water leaving our farm it's just processing what it can i don't remember the exact time frame but it's like a three hour three to four hour turnaround time of when that water goes into the into this bag of chips and then there's a tile line at the other end of it where it slowly seeps through this bag and then leaves the bag and and goes back into the tile and out into the stream. And that was a good point of clarification there too on like the wood chips are not just like mulch that you're using on your garden or around trees, but these are like little hunks of wood. And it's really quite yeah. the engineering process to be able to install one of these. Like, did you guys have to go through, you know, where's the best place to put it and how big does it need to be? And how do we get the tile lines to flow correctly? Like how was the engineering system there? Yeah, that, that's what took a long time. We worked closely with the NRCS office, and that's who actually approached us was the NRCS office about putting this in. And it, it took a while for the engineers. First, we had to find the tile lines that were flowing out of our farm, which we knew generally where they were. But they had to map. In order to engineer it, they had to have the tile map to know how big of an area, how much of the field is going through this tile line, leaving the leaving the farm, to know how big they can make this bag of wood chips, the bioreactor, how large it needs to be. And then even for the bioreactors, there's different styles of bioreactors where we have one control box on our farm. There's other farms that there's two where there's a inlet and an outlet. And then they had to do a new tie line out. All ours is, is it goes into this control box, flows through it and comes back into that box and out the existing tie line. So they only replaced like a 10 foot chunk of our field tile uh, to install this bioreactor. But the, the, we talked talk about the wood chips, about it not being mulch. Originally, when they started doing these, the mulch, they would, it would break down too fast, and it wouldn't have the, the lifespan that they're hoping for. So we don't know what the lifespan will be. They're hoping for 10 to 15 years before we'd have to replace these wood chips that are in the bioreactor. I would imagine some of the lifespan has got to do with the several things, probably the volume of water coming through, and then the other thing would be the amount of nitrates coming in that water that comes through, right? I don't know if the nitrates has much to do with it, but it's all about the decomp decomposition of the wood chips, how fast they break down. 
because once they start breaking down, the microbial activity won't be happening and won't be doing its job. So we'll know when that's not working, when it's not taking the nitrites out anymore. Sure. Yeah, because the microbes are using the nitrogen to break down the wood chips is a little bit more of like the technical side of how it all works. Yep. So you guys are monitoring those nitrogen levels. Is that correct? Yep. Yep, yep that's correct. Walk yep. us through that process. Yeah, so the local NRCS guy has been wonderful about this. He's been coming out, of course. This one was the first one in BV County, so we got ours in first, and he is, was monitoring our tile lines prior to this, and then once we got it installed, and in that control box area, he's you can get one of those little hoses, and you just kind of shake it, and then it'll bring the water up to the top, collect a sample of the, the tile water that is going into the bioreactor, put it in a jar, um, then you get it on the outside of it too. You get it, the sample up in there, take it in a jar, and then he sends it off to a lab. And then the lab analyzes it and lets us know where we're at. So the first year we did it in 18, um, our, our nitrate levels are low going into here just because of the farming practices that we have. So I've got I've got some data from ours and then also an alternative bioreactor in this county. And when we started our process, like I said, it was a long process getting the engineers get this all done. When we started, we were running about 17, 18 uh, parts per million of our nitrates going out of our tile water. Well, when we started testing this, um, the first test we took, the water going into the bioreactor was only 4.1. And then in May, it was 4.2 and 5, and then 5.1 and 3.6. And then in October of last year, it was 8.5. And, and then on the outside where it was going back into the dumping back into the dredge ditch um where the first sample was 1.2 parts per million out and then the rest of them were less than 0.5 parts per million wow. which is basically undetectable so That's basically crazy. the water is close to nitrate free as it can get to leave the farm and a key point of and, clarification there too like the standard is 10 parts per million that's kind of that's, the, the that's what you want to be that's under the drinking water standard right. yeah that's that's correct. Yep, that's a drinking water standard. And then also when he was uh, testing the dredge ditch too, he would test test what's in the creek, and it had been up as high as 15 and as low as 6.4 is where the the creek itself was actually running. So, so with with something like this now, I mean that's that's pretty impressive to take it from eight parts per million down to a half to one part per million, right? In in just a process of two or three hours passing through that the wood chips? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And the and the data on the alternative bioreactor in the county, the numbers that, that I see, uh, they they can run that seventeen, eighteen, nineteen and they're coming out at zero and two and point seven. So it can take out more than what we're putting into it. Sure. So without so it, very, it's a very effective tool. Mm-hmm. Without any, without seeing any real um, infield benefits from this, can you explain why you decided? Why did you want to install the bioreactor? Right. Well, like I say, when when the standard is ten, and you want to be doing the best job you can be doing, and there's this tool that uh, came at little cost to us, uh, we decided to go forward with it to in, to install it. So, and and it's just a good. Back to we want to do a better job, be a better steward of the land, better steward of the water going out. Uh, this just seemed like a natural fit for our practice when we had already, for our farming practices, when we're already implementing the strip till, no till cover crops and low disturbance manure application. It just was another tool in the tool chest. 
So you said there was uh, little cost to this as far as, as you and the landlord go. Um, yep. Where was the, I assume this was some cost share funded, um, There's this was a cost share funded project? Yes, yes, this was a cost share funded. And some of it was from the IDALS, Iowa Department of Ag Land Stewardship. Um, there was some from the Iowa pork producers that kicked in. There's like three, I think there's two or three or four sources that helped fund the project that we could draw from um, to make it so there is not much cost out of the pocket for the landowner. Do you have any idea how many of these have been installed? Whether it be in your county or in Iowa, or maybe Mitchell knows. Uh, I know everything, Zach. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I think there's there's somewhere like 100 of them in Iowa, I believe. In Iowa. Yeah, in Iowa, I believe there's like 100 of them. And what is the general cost on one of these, uh, you know, in as a whole, mm-hmm. in total, not not what's the cost of the landowner or to the yeah total cost of the project. Yeah, what what do you know what that is, Mike? Do you know what yours was? Well, I know uh, ours cost right around ten thousand dollars is what the total project cost was. My understanding but, that's a little on the low end, but the key was for Mike's farm. They just tied into the tile that was already the there. tile that's already there. I yeah. think a lot exactly. of projects like they have quite a bit more tiling that needs to happen. They're actually to be able adding to kind of tile stuff together. Yeah, they're adding tile. They're sure. adding better mains that are going to drain directly into the bioreactor. So I, I assume that probably has a lot to do with uh, the cost. That and only one control, st- control station instead of two. And because it's only 60 acres instead of more than that, that is filtering out uh, the, the wood chips weren't as big. So, you know, it, there was as many of them was as many loads. So the wood chips is for what I remember it being they're coming from Des Moines. Somewhere down in there is where they found their source to be hauling them up here. So the major cost of this project were, were the wood chips coming up. Yeah. Yeah, that's I've heard. Like the wood chips can be really, really expensive there. And and obviously yeah. overall, I mean, ten to fifteen or I've I've heard up to twenty thousand dollars for these um structures. That's a lot of money. For yeah. a single for, for one, one single bioreactor, yeah. Have you seen yeah. any negative impacts as far as um, on your field or, or having land taken out of production or anything like that? Has it impacted you negatively on that land in any way? Right. No, I haven't seen really any negative negative effects of this. It's it's placed directly on our buffer strip that is next to the dredge ditch. So it didn't take any farming land out of practice when they installed this, that it just went right in the buffer strip at the edge of the field and uh, didn't affect the, the farm ground at all. So we didn't lose any, an acre of production or anything. It just is there. Uh, we just have a path going out there now because people come and keep coming out and looking at it. That's the only negative thing, I guess, but it's, it's a good negative thing. Yeah. That's how so we want to be able to show like, it. How, yeah. How have, have you guys been showing this thing off? Are you having field days about it or what, what yep. are your neighbors thinking about? Yeah, yeah, we've had we've hosted oh, two or three field days, and one of them was basically focused on this uh, bioreactor. We've done we did other field days for low disturbance mirror application, and then uh, strip till just conservation practices, cover crops, that type of stuff. But one was we we had a field day up in our yard, and uh, Corteva helped sponsor it, and we we went and had the trolleys from our local threshing bee they have trolleys or people movers and we loaded people up in our yard and then we drove down the the buffer strip out to the bioreactor and and showed probably 100 people that day um how the thing worked what what was the and feedback that you got on that well they, it's just amazing they couldn't believe that's all it was and that it's just a little box is all you see sticking on the ground and um there's been 
Uh, I know there's one other one that went in a couple months, which obviously it wasn't because of this one, but it, it went in a couple months after ours went in. Uh, there was another one that went up last last fall or spring. I think it was a spring. I went to that field day just to see how that one was working. And then there's another one going in a neighbor's farm just a, about five miles away. And they were here for that field day too. So I don't know if it was because of the field day or just because, again, people are getting educated and wanting to try do a better job with the resources that we have that they're they're going to install one on their farm too. So it's been it's been positive. There hasn't been we haven't heard much negative, but um, it's been a good thing. Yeah, Mike, I got I got one last question for you. How do you recommend bioreactors to other farmers that might be sort of uh, on the fence about whether or not to invest in something like this? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Right. Well, I'd I'd suggest to them to go go tour one, go, go see one that's already up and running and, and talk to the, the person who's affected by it, the farmer that's running the ground, talk to the landowner that, that installed it and, and just get the feedback on it and do your, do their own investigating and, and see if it's something that wants to fit their, their farm, if it'll work on their edge of field. And they could also just go to the NRCS office and they pull up soil maps and they can have a general idea of if one would fit on their farm or not. Here goes, I know there's now you've got a spot to, to use your money. Oh, that's just what I need. Yeah. Places to spend money. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. I've had yeah. trouble yeah. trying to think of... <laughs> Places to spend your money. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Common problem. Yeah. 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 But no, it's it, it doesn't... It hasn't affected us. It's been a good thing. It's great to see the numbers. It's fun to be able to talk about nitrate-free water coming out of it. That um, it's great. It's great results from this... Yeah, in, not a big inconvenience practice. Well, this has uh, been a, another fun conversation with yeah. uh, Mike Ehlers joining us via Skype, a farmer from Iowa and an early adopter of uh, an edge of field practice known as the bioreactor. Mike, I want to thank you for having this conversation with us today. It's been fun. You're welcome. It's been a blast. Thank you, Mitchell and Zach, for having me on your show. So great to hear uh, that farmer perspective, you know, on how they're implementing these practices on their farm. But we also want to understand the bigger picture and uh, what's out there in the world of edge field practices. So let's get back to that talk that we had with Professor Amy Kalita. But first, we're going to take a quick break. And we're back with the Fieldwork Podcast. I'm Zach Johnson. And I'm Mitchell Hora. Today, we're talking about edge of field practices. So a big question here is how exactly do you choose what kind of edge of field practice might work for you? Sounds like a question for an expert, Zach. I agree. And that's why we brought on Amy Kalita from Iowa State University. Let's hear more of what she has to say. So a bioreactor would be, um, do you have a tile drain system and do you know where it is and kind of what the drainage area is for that system? And if you are kind of in the target zone, Typical designs are going to treat 30 to 80 acres of tile drain fields. You know where the, the outlet from your system is. That's a candidate for a bioreactor. If, on the other hand, you don't have any tile in your field, but you've got a creek at, this, at the edge of the field, then you should be looking at, uh, do, you, do you know you have surface flow that's, that runs across that ground and then into the creek, and can you intercept that by putting in a buffer? And if you have both... You put in a buffer and you have a tile drain system, that tile drain system might be kind of short-circuiting the buffer so that all of the subsurface flow just shoots straight on through the tile and doesn't interact with the buffer. 
You could think about routing that subsurface flow out along a distribution tile and, and through the subsurface of the buffer, and that's the saturated buffer option, which is kind of a twofer. You're getting that surface treatment from the buffer part and then subsurface treatment from the microbridge environment and the root system. And so in the end, any of these edge-of-field practices that you just mentioned, you're always using an organic process to filter the nitrates out. Right. It's it's really kind of an ecological engineering approach where we, we're just figuring out what kinds of like biological processes do we want to really ramp up and what sort of environment can we create that will really max out those processes that are naturally occurring anyway, but we want more of them. So there are, you know, also physical processes that come into play. Like um, in a wetland, you also get any particulate matter, like sediment particles will settle out. And so you get some, that's more of a sort of physical operation and less of a biological operation. Um, But then the wetland also has good microbes that are going to be doing some of the other stuff. So there's a little bit of both. Kind of surface buffer strips, riparian buffer strips are also a both and because there is some um, uptake of nutrients that happens, especially if you can route some more water through the subsurface there. But then also that really grassy surface will catch some sediment particles. And if those sediments have any phosphorus attached to them, which we know happens, um, you'll clean those things out of the water before that water eventually rolls into a receiving water body at the other side of the buffer. Obviously, the benefit to these practices is, in the end, cleaner water, right? That's the objective here is, is cleaner water, not not just for the farmer, not just for the consumers, but for everybody because that's what right. everybody wants. And so when you when you talk about that and you talk about the cost and, and maybe some of the downfalls of trying to install some of these systems or use some of these practices, um, can you talk about why farmers really need to be interested in this and need to consider using some of these practices on their farms because it doesn't always directly come back to a benefit on the farm itself. That's right. It doesn't. Typically, the benefits accrue to the community at large rather than to the individual farmer. I mean, there are some sort of like in-field practices where there are multi-part benefits. I know you guys have talked a lot about cover crops and soil health in general, and those are things that are, that's a win-win. But these edge-of-field practices really are not doing a whole lot for the farmer's operation. They're not negatively affecting it, but they're not enhancing the bottom line in any way. Um, So then we're looking at what kind of state and federal programs can we put in place that defray those costs so that the the sort of community that that gets the benefit is also making an investment in putting those things in place. But for me, one of the big reasons that I think farmers need to be thinking about this is that there's a lot of pressure uh, on this system and in the politics around this system to move to a more regulated um, thing about water quality. And and the more voluntary uh, kind of signups we get, uh, the less finger pointy that situation is, right? So I think that it's also a good investment in um, community relationship building to have some of these edge of field practices going in place in your community because we're all in it together. And and to the extent that we can really max out those partnerships where we've got some public investment in defraying the costs and then farmers who are willing to put those things in the ground on their land, um, that, that, that builds some capacity and some goodwill at a local level. Yeah. So it's kind of like, 
you know, building a good reputation there and it's kind of showcasing, Hey, you know, we're really trying to do something, um, that's very easily documented. Yep. There's not as many of them. It's easier to count. And, uh, yep. but, that, but that it's really making a big impact that's very well documented as well. Um, so how, like, what are you guys seeing in terms of adoption of bioreactors? How many of them are in Iowa right now? And how do we, how do we do more of this? I don't know that I have a number. I, I think in, it's around like a hundred of them and is about it. Yeah. And then in Iowa, it's estimated that we probably need, um, like a hundred thousand mm-hmm. of them. So Zach um, and I did the math. It should be no problem. So we definitely need lots of them uh, happening. And um, what was the second part of that question? Well, what's the adoption of it looking like? Are you, are you seeing the interest picking up? And yeah. uh, and we know that these are fairly expensive to put in. You know, are we going to be able to really scale this up? Um, yeah. As the viable option that that it appears to be. Yeah. Right. So the cost. Uh, wood chip bioreactors tend to $20,000 per. So they, it is not inconsequential. And again, there are, um, there can be some cost share involved in there, um, depending on what watershed you're in. If it's a kind of a priority watershed federally or state, um, there's more supports than there are in places where it's um, not yet a priority watershed. Um, so yeah, the cost is not inconsequential. Um, but there, but interest is picking up because they are sort of um, once you have one in, they can last for ten, fifteen years without you having to hardly do anything. So they are um, they're they're really quite um, convenient from a management standpoint. Part of the reason that we're seeing more of them go in is just like as a community, I think farmers and landowners getting a little bit more excited about soil conservation and about having a more visible role in the conversation about where we're going locally, regionally, nationally on water quality and how can we all partner up. So, um, you know, there, there's a pretty classic technology adoption curve that's like it's, it always starts out really, really tiny. And then at some point you get kind of a critical mass and you see a really increasing rate until kind of everybody's in. You know, like having a cell phone was that way. It used to be that it was really, really hardly anybody had one. And now everybody has one. Um, and, and a lot of technology adoption rates follow that thing where things seem like really slow and, and where is this all going to go? And then at some point kind of you get to that part where it's just sort of, it's, it's the thing that everybody is doing. And, you know, edge of field practices are maybe a little bit different because there is that kind of disconnect between who's doing the putting in and who's getting the benefits. So we'd expect that rate to be slowed a little bit compared to a typical technology adoption curve. But there's also a lot of like, uh, neighbor to neighbor kind of, oh, well, this guy put one in and it was actually it seemed kind of cool. And then now, like, you know, people are talking about it and I'm going to put one in too. And um, so we do see some of that community building happening. And, and when people see, oh, yeah, it's not, it's not that hard to do. And we can figure out partnerships that reduce the cost. And this is a thing that's not that tough to accomplish. Let's do it. That in. Um, so in Minnesota, it, it's calmed down a little bit right now. This is kind of going off on another question here, but the the debates over it have calmed down a little bit at this point. But I'm sure you're well aware of the the buffer strip law that we had come about come at us here about three years ago, maybe four now. 
um, the governor of Minnesota came out and and um, passed executive orders um, to require fifty foot minimum fifty foot buffer strips along public waterways. Yeah. Um, and it started out that vague, so it, it, there was a lot of controversy over what we're going to do here. Um, in the end, there, there's a lot of buffer strips out there now um, that weren't there when that all came about. But what we found out was that uh, a very, very high percentage of the public waterways already had at least that much buffer strip around them to begin with. But yeah. one of the questions I had, because uh, you know, in the county that I'm in, we don't have a lot of public waterways. Um, there's a, a ton of waterways and private waterways, but not a lot of public ones. But mm-hmm. in a, in a buffer strip situation, are they are there ever times when a buffer strip is not necessary, not the right thing, or or to add to that, are there ever unintended consequences of buffer strips around waterways? Yeah, um, that's a good question, and I, I would say. Not there's not necessarily unintended consequences in the classical sense, like oh, it, we thought it was going to be doing this great thing, and actually it's doing something terrible. But there are cases where we thought it was going to do this great thing, and it turns out it's not really doing anything. And the reason for that is that um, the water goes where it wants to, and it will always find the quickest and fastest way off the field. In your studies, sorry, Amy, but in your studies, um, you find that water does run downhill. No way. <laughs> yeah. That was probably the key takeaway from all of my years of education. Okay, gravity. So yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna <laughs> I'm 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 gonna affirm that. I can confirm that is how it works. But with the Earth being flat, it's gravity's not a real thing. Well, <laughs> I just thought maybe it was different in Iowa. Now to my yeah. So I've 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 worked in or practiced in three states already, and that's been the case in all of them. So I mean, I haven't gotten to the entire globe, but um, but I'm ready to commit on that one. There you the go. downhill yeah, well, is it. Well, sounds pretty confident. <laughs> we'll send you. Yeah. We'll send you to all those places. You can go check okay. and and Perfect. maybe have just, have a yep, vacation on while a work you're trip. At it. I think yeah. we need a broader um, study. We're working on getting you a. Uh, we're working on getting a helicopter, so we'll fly you around. Perfect. Perfect. So one of the things that happens, because that's true, is that if you've got an area where the flow is kind of concentrating and it's sort of building itself a little channel, it can cut right through that buffer over time if you're not really paying attention to it or if you didn't size the buffer to account for the fact that some of those stream channel sides are receiving a lot of flow and some are receiving less flow. So putting in a a buffer needs to be sensitive to that fact that you're going to have different different amounts and velocities of flow coming in. So if you get an area with a little narrow buffer and a lot of flow velocity, it might just cut itself a channel that then then the water is just moving right through that channel that's cut through the buffer. It's not going through the buffer at all. Through through a process of the natural erosion that would have occurred right. regardless, right? Right. right. Do you- One of the reasons that I am hoping that more people look more seriously at some of this, the whole suite of practices is that the more things people decide to do that are that work for their operation and work for the ground that they're on, it does build some of that community spirit that potentially um, helps to make sure that all the voices are at the table when those kinds of policies are being discussed. Do you ever find that phosphorus into the water is actually increased through a buffer? any data on that myself, so I don't want to speculate. Sure. The conventional wisdom is that if the buffer is functional and it is, uh, you got enough of that water 
routing through enough buffer that it is slowing down the flow so that the sediment particles settle out, um, that at least the surface flow will be, will be cleaned a little bit from that um, sediment-bound phosphorus. But things do get a little bit funky when you have soils with really high soil phosphorus kind of maxed out all of the binding sites in the soil for phosphorus to adhere to, which is what it wants to do first. And now you've got all this dissolved phosphorus. Um, that, that is maybe a thing that we would want to keep an eye on in a buffer because with, you know, after a buffer has been in place for a really long period of time, theoretically, you could have such an accumulation of phosphorus in that buffer that it's kind of maxed out its assimilation capacity, and then it, it, it lacks the ability to really effectively treat that water from phosphorus. You're still going to get the cleaning of the sediment um, out of there, but you may not have the same sort of phosphorus dynamics that you have in, in a different buffer. And in the meantime, you still have the organic breakdown from the vegetation right. that's there. Right. which which obviously creates phosphorus. Yes. And and right. so that that would be the one uh sort of caveat that I have heard kind of in in regards to buffer strips is that sometimes some studies and believe me I am not a scientist from the University of Iowa <laughs> or from Iowa State, sorry. Yeah, I'm not a scientist from the University of Iowa either. <laughs> yeah, we, None of us here are. No. But but that's one of the things that I have heard in in relation to that is that at at times they do see increases in phosphorus just because of all the extra organic breakdown right next to the water, um, but it's you know like you're saying that that's that's not necessarily something that you found in your studies. I don't study that particular dynamic, so I'm mostly just speculating on the basis of what I understand to be what happens mm-hmm. in those kinds of systems. Sure. So I don't have any data that says, well, here's when it definitely does happen or doesn't happen um, myself. Well, and the whole point being, like, there's pros and cons to all of this stuff. And that's why there's mm-hmm. not a one-size-fits-all. And yep. I think that's that's the whole point, you know. If Zach and I were talking about this before with the Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy, that, you know, there's multiple different practices that are laid out within that strategy. Um, but the overall goal is to reduce nitrogen and phosphorus um, leaving the field by 41%. Can right. you clear up, where did we get 41% from? Because Zach oh, and I yeah. are pretty sure we pulled it out of a hat. Yep. <laughs> no, there was a, a science assessment that looked at, for the whole Mississippi River watershed, what would it take to reduce the hypoxic zone to some target level? And then uh, what what are the reductions that would be required in each of the kind of major sub-basins of the Mississippi River. And then if you look at within those sub-basins, if we need this percent reduction in order to, if everybody's doing that, meet the goal for the hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico, what proportion of the nitrogen and phosphorus would we have to see reduced on our ag land versus reduced from point sources like wastewater treatment plants and industrial facilities? So there was a whole bunch of math to begin with some goal for uh, reducing the nutrient load that creates the hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico and then stepping that back and back and back and back and back. So we finally got to, well, in Iowa, it's a 41% reduction from the non-point source contributions, which are all the ag lands. There's another percent reduction required for the point sources. So Science, Zach. Drawing out of yep, a hat would have science. been so much science. simpler. <laughs> yeah, the hat idea would have been a lot easier. <laughs> science, though. I got a question here that I want to yeah, ask yeah. here on the, on the Gulf hypoxia. 
Um, so golf hypoxia, when you look when you look this up online, because again, I'm not a scientist, so mm. I go get most of my information from YouTube, from which the is where the, mm-hmm. yeah, the best information in the world comes from. <laughs> and my understanding is that the hypoxia in the golf, the, the, the dead zone, as we call it, right, has been naturally occurring for thousands of years due to the cold fresh water or the warm fresh water going into the colder salt water. Obviously, there's some complications with that now at this point because of the because of the nutrients and the phosphorus that we're seeing down there. But can you explain, um, Amy, if maybe you could ex- do a better job of explaining that, what that used to be like compared to what it's like now and why that's sure. a concern? Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, as you mentioned, that hypoxic zone happens for very natural reasons. And um, But one of the changes that has happened in the last half century that has really um, changed those dynamics so that there's, so that, that zone is larger and it's more consistently larger than we have seen in the past. In the past, it was maybe more related to, it was, well, it's always strongly related to the weather, how much flow are we getting. And when there's flow, then there's stuff coming with that flow. Um, that's a very natural process. But one of the things that has changed uh, since thousands of years ago is that it used to be that our landscape was really dominated by kind of long-term perennial uh, crops, and now it's really dominated by short-term annual crops. So we have a lot of the year where there is not very much nutrient uptake happening on the landscape because we've got fallow fields with nothing growing on them. And that's even changed even just since production and agriculture started really in, in, in large degree because once upon a time, uh, you might be growing corn on half the field in any, in half the land in any given year, but the other half of the year, the other half of the time, you may be growing oats or barley or some, you know, alfalfa or some of those longer lasting grassier crops that had a longer season of nutrient uptake because all of that was going to feed the animals that were providing the rest of the farm labor. And with uh, the coming of mechanized agriculture, we didn't need that feedstock anymore. And so the other crop that came in to replace that was soybeans, which is also an annual with a relatively short growing season. So we're seeing today, compared to 100 years ago, just a lot more of the year where we don't have anything actively growing on the landscape. And all of the water that moves through the landscape during that portion of the year is really vulnerable to taking with it that the nitrogen and the phosphorus that contributes to the dead zone. Uh, Amy Kalita with the Iowa State University, I want to thank you very much for coming on here with us today. Another good conversation, a lot of fun talking to somebody who's in the trenches and and, and apparently educated Mitchell. (laughs) It was so hard. Yeah, which is no small feat. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) But thank you for coming on with us here today and and having the conversation with us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. We'll see you later. All right. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you, Amy. (laughs) It's now that time on the Fieldwork Podcast when we take listener voicemails. Hi, this is Tina Hughes calling from St. Anthony Park, Minnesota. We're not a farming family, but that's, uh, I had, um, you know, ancestors who were farmers here in Minnesota. The podcast has been great. It's been very educational. I've learned so much about what's going on in farming today and what, um, 
farmers are facing the issues. I've always been very interested in sustainability. So in particular, your podcast is teaching me a lot about um, how farmers are approaching this and, and what they need to do and what they're interested in. And it just it actually makes me feel very supportive of all of our the farmers in our state. And I also am interested in in directing my consumer business to companies that support farmers in their quest for sustainability. So thanks for the podcast and keep up the good work. Oh, that's really awesome, Tina. Thank you so much for calling in. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you for the kind words. It's been fun to see where this podcast has gotten to now over the last year. You know, we get a lot of listeners who are farmers that love hearing what we're doing and hearing who we're talking to about everybody's different experiences. And it's really kind of been shown now that we can reach non-farmers as well because non-farmers are interested in what we're doing. There's a lot of people out there like Tina who really just don't fully understand what it is we have going on out here in the agriculture world. And they're excited to actually hear from farmers about what is going on, about our challenges and the successes and, and how we're concerned about sustainability as well. But it's not always exactly just as easy as it looks from the outside. So it's really cool to hear from somebody like Tina who appreciates what we're doing and who loves listening to this podcast. Tina, thanks again for calling in. We really, really appreciate it. That's it for Fieldwork today. Thanks to all the people who helped make Fieldwork possible. Annie Baxter, Amy Scotchless-Cole, Claire Jones, Noah Boston, Kristen Schmidt, Eric Romani, and Lauren Humper. Our theme song is written and performed by Johnny Vince Evans with help from Corey Schreppel. Our website is fieldworktalk.org, and we're Fieldwork Talk on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Blowing it up on the socials. It's going crazy. Yeah. If you like our show, uh, we want you to write a review. That would be great. And uh, we'd love to get a voicemail from you. You can call us up, and we'll play your voicemail on our show. Leave us a comment or a question at 651-228-4810. That's 651-228-4810. Thanks, everybody, for listening. 